So firstly, it's not just the first one or two years. I live with imposter syndrome all the time mm. and I'm constantly kind of battling with it. When I got a letter from our Governor-General saying you've been appointed to the Commission, I, I literally picked up the phone, dialed the number at the bottom and going, you know, there's someone else that's like similar spelling to me. Are you sure? Like, honestly, if I'm the best person for this role, we're fucked. You know? <laughs> that, was, that was pretty much how I thought of it at the time. Welcome back to Big Feels at Work, the show where mental health and addictions professionals talk about what it's like to do this work and have big feels of your own. So what's it like to be a CEO and still have imposter syndrome? And how do you go from being a peer worker to sitting in the big chair? And when you get those fancy three letters in your title, CEO, how do you bring your whole self to work, messiness included, when you're the one everyone's looking to, to have the answers? My guest today has done all that and more. Over a 20-year career in mental health, Tammy Allen was the CEO of Changing Minds, one of New Zealand's oldest consumer organisations, and she's now Director of Ember Innovations, not to mention being appointed to New Zealand's Mental Health and Wellbeing Commission driving real change in New Zealand's mental health sector at the highest levels. In all her work, Tammy brings what she calls lived expertise, or lived wisdom. How do I know Tammy? Well, we're actually colleagues from way back. We started out in mental health together, as you'll hear, at a place called Mind and Body Consultants, which was a very unique mental health agency run and staffed entirely by people with their own lived expertise. Tammy and I talk about what it was like to start our careers at a place like that, and I ask some nosy questions about how she's got to where she is today, into these positions of really impressive leadership, and how she handles the imposter syndrome that she says is still there, no matter how many fancy job titles she gets. So here's my chat with Tammy Allen. Kia ora, Tammy. Kia ora. Kate Pihekwe. Kate Tony. I'm still smiling. Excellent. So Tammy is an Aussie living in New Zealand, and I am a New Zealander living in Australia. We have swapped places. Yeah, we have. Tammy's also a colleague of mine from way back uh, when we were both starting out in mental health, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. So so was Mind and Body your first mental health job? Yeah, it was, yeah. What yeah. was that like in the early 2000s, the Nordics? Too long ago, but yeah. <laughs> I actually do want to start there. So I'll set the scene a little. Mm. For our listeners, so here in Victoria, we've we've had a very concerted push for more lived experience leadership in our system, more lived expertise, and they're aiming at getting that from the top down. So more executives, more board members with lived experience. And the idea is pretty simple, right? We know that the system needs to change. The government has explicitly acknowledged we have a broken mental health system. If we have more people calling the shots who've been through this stuff themselves firsthand then hopefully we won't just do the same stuff we've always done that hasn't really worked. We'll do something different. Mm. But the problem is that there's not a whole lot of tangible examples yet. We do have a few. We have one or two CEOs in our system who are out as having lived experience. I suspect we have a whole lot more executives Mm. who aren't out publicly in various parts of the system. But there aren't a whole lot of examples of what it even looks like to be a leader who's bringing their whole self to work. Mm. And certainly not a whole lot of examples of how the hell you get there (laughs) into those leadership roles. So we could talk about a million things, but for me, you're exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about lived experience leadership, why it's different, why it's needed. And the thing I'd really like to focus on is the how you got there 
and what mm. it's like to find yourself in, in those leadership roles now. Mm. So essentially the journey of how you went from starting as a peer support worker and becoming a CEO. That's, that's kind of the, the hook. That sounds great. <laughs> it's quite a windy journey, Graham. <laughs> yeah, well, let's, let's go. Um, so I, I want to start with that, that first gig in mental health. So both of us started our career, if I remember correctly, as peer support workers. Is that right? No, I started off as a consumer advisor. Ah, that's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did peer support later, but my first job was as a consumer advisor. It was really, yeah. you know, I was when I came in and and met you guys. I was a flight attendant, and I'd just broken my leg, and they told me I couldn't fly for a while. I was grounded, and I was like, "Well, I don't want to do that." So I'll go back and see mind and body and see if they've got anything open. So mind and body was. I often describe it as New Zealand's first and biggest peer-run mental health agency. So we're talking early days of professional peer support. Like obviously peer support's been around forever. There's been peer support throughout the consumer movement in a kind of grassroots sense. But this was the beginnings of a kind of professionalized discipline of peer support and mental health. And what was so unusual about Mind and Body, that organization was everyone from the CEO to the cleaner had lived experience. We often talked about how everyone there had experience of being mad. We literally used that kind of language. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know about you, but I, it took, took until I'd moved to Australia and worked in much more mainstream settings to understand quite how unique that workplace was. Super unique, yeah. And, and Jim, and I'm, I, I, I say the word was not because he's dead, but because he's retired now. So he's still around. Jim was such a visionary in that field. You know, he started off by just doing some advice at a philosopher in a local DHB and then had the foresight to, to turn his small consultancy into a, a what was then a for-profit business, which was quite unusual in the field. And then he, from right from the beginning, had that philosophy that those with lived experience are going to be the best people to employ and see value in it. And I remember, it was I'm sure it was in the first weeks of me doing it, he, you know, and I was still struggling to work out what this lived experience thing was and come from a corporate setting into a, gosh, now, I have to talk about this all the time in that, that moment where I, what I call looking in the mirror and you walk mm. into a workplace and you no longer can leave it at home. You're constantly staring at yourself and the things you need to improve. And, and he said the words that I, I've printed on T-shirts since, which is you're enabled by your experience, not disabled by them. Mm. So this is Jim Burdett, who's the, one of the founders of, of Mind and Body, who, yeah, I, I totally agree, a very unique and, and amazing guy, like a, essentially a philosopher by training, right, and a businessman. Yeah. And then he'd had his own breakdown and from that forged this, this organization from nothing. What you said, there, there's some interesting stuff in that around the idea of, you know, for the first time ever, instead of being employed by a clinical service, you could be employed by a peer-run agency where everyone else there got it i often talk about it as the single most nourishing place to have an ongoing nervous breakdown because when i started working there i was genuinely still pretty fucked like they they told me like yeah right so they told me a couple of years after i'd been working there and doing pretty well there they told me we almost didn't hire you graham because you were pretty raw and i said (laughs) to them well thank god you did because honestly that was more supportive and nourishing a place than anything I'd found searching for help. Does that make sense? And I'm curious if that resonates with you and also in particular, because you came from outside the sector, right? And you'd done all these other interesting things. You have a performance background, you're working as a flight attendant, like all these really interesting, cool things that had nothing to do with the mental health sector. 
when you came to Mind and Body was the fact that it was this very different environment run by other people who'd been there too. Was that, was that part of what kept you in the sector, if that makes sense? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, there's probably a couple of things in that. I mean, one is I don't think I realised how hard it was going to be. I mean, I'd come from a place where you naturally hid this stuff. That was the norm. And then I'm working a place where you can no longer hide that. You know I mean, a quick Google search. Now there's no way I'll ever be able to go back in the closet. <laughs> you know, so you've got to be okay with that. And that's that's a bit of a journey to be okay with that. But I think I, I really resonate with the, the place where you can have an ongoing breakdown because the one thing I loved about Mind and Body and I can, I've can i continued in my leadership for the 20 years since has been there that it's okay to bring your whole self. In fact, it's encouraged to bring your whole self to work, even on the messy days, even if it means turning up in your pyjamas. But it's not an excuse not to turn up. You know, if you've got an, a nourishing, encouraging workplace that's safe for you, it's better to be around, you know, shuffling paper on a desk and, and not being very productive but having colleagues around you that care and will bring you cups of tea than it is home underneath the duvet covers because you're able to get back on your feet and back into feeling valued and valuable sooner if you're around other people that, one, are accepting you the way you are but and two won't won't put up with the excuses of oh well i'm just going to stay home because i'm sick we know you're not we know you're mm. not like sick in the traditional sense mm. we know that you're really struggling and actually be better if you haven't struggled around us we won't bother you you can go and lie down on the couch there but we're going to bustle around you and at some point you'll probably get bored of lying on the couch and want to come join us <laughs> and that seems to have always worked in those environments where from like you said from the board to the cleaner everyone has lived experience such an unusual experience and i suspect given what i've seen you do since that that experience has shaped some of what you've done next completely okay so so this early experience of of quite a unique and similar to me like quite a unique taste of what's possible I'm curious at that stage, so doing consumer advisor work, which for our Aussie listeners is, is sort of comparable to con- what we call consumer consultants over here. So working in that role and then this peer support role kind of fairly early on. I'm curious about in those roles, did you have aspirations to more strategic positions at that point or were you sort of just following your nose? No, I think I just had aspirations to un- to actually understand what was going on and make a difference. I think that naturally leads down a more strategic path as you understand more about how the system works and what could be changed within it. But it certainly wasn't a a goal or an aspiration I had when I started in it. I think consumer advice was a very good start, though, in terms of thinking about strategy because being in those multidisciplinary teams with lots of other types of clinicians and non-clinical staff, you really got a sense of how all of the different pieces fit together and when things were broken, it was usually pretty evident. And I remember that, you know, the first year in particular, there was acronyms that I didn't understand. There was positions I didn't understand. And I think the thing I've held on to from day one to right now is the the frustration, which I'll always act on and always speak to, which is why do we make things overly complicated? 
you know, complex is okay. Things, systems are complex. People are complex. Complexity is is part of the norm. We need to work with that. But but we tend to, in health in particular, make things overly complicated. We put too many steps, too much bureaucracy in it. Whereas my and I think the naive inquirer position of a consumer advisor can just go, but why aren't we just doing that? Like doing all these things don't make sense. It's actually you're trying to avoid risk, but it seems to me like it's more risky. Why wouldn't you just get rid of that stuff and just go and talk to the person? You know, oversimplifying, obviously, but that that's the the beauty I've kind of held on to. So mm. strategy feels like such a big word because mm. it's all, you know, drawing these pictures and, and, but for me, it's always how do we make things as simple as possible? How do we, how do we strip out the, the complicated nature of things and instead try and get to the simplest way through and how do we put it in the simplest language so that anyone can pick up a strategy regardless of who they are and whether they you know are a single parent living at home or a dairy owner or working in a corporate world or working mental health and still be able to read it and see themselves in that plan and see how that will change their world that's what I'm always trying to get to when we're doing this work and that came from that those very first days on the job of not not understanding anything that was being said around me. There's kind of two things I want to pull, tease out of that. So one is this 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 through line of staying curious. Mm. Certainly in peer support, that's a it's a it's one of your vital things in your toolkit. Yeah, yeah. In advocacy, it's one of your vital things in your toolkit. Why is it this way? You know, yeah. why does it have to be done this way? Does it have to be done this way? And I love the idea, and we'll get to that when we get to your your CEO days. That 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 same tool is still this sort of omni tool, that, that curiosity. And what I'm also hearing from what you're describing is that in those early days when you, you know, you're thrown completely in the deep end, because let's face it, that's what this work is, right? For any of us, you can do all the training you like and then you day one on the job, you have no idea what you're doing. Yeah. The thing I'm hearing is, is there's something about, I have to stay curious on behalf of my, the people I'm representing here, right? The people who would look at these plans and think, what the fuck does any of this mean? How does this help me feel exactly. better? So there's something about, from day one having a sense of why you're in there doing it and that that helps at least a little with that feeling of I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think whenever you are someone with a, an experience that you're bringing to the table, and I, I broaden that out from lived experience too, if you might be bringing a cultural experience or a worldview that's important to the table but you don't otherwise speak the language of the table, that that being a naive inquirer and being curious and working out how it actually what it actually means and how it applies to you remains vitally important because it's very easy to get lulled in that into that sense of if I just speak their language I'll fit in yes but actually the more you understand everyone around that table and build those relationships with people you realize that a lot of them are just saying the words as well so when you you know gain allies around that table you hear things like well, I don't know what it fucking means either. <laughs> and it's like, right, okay, well now, you know, out of the 12 people sitting around the table, five of us actually don't know what yep. what we're doing here. So how about we strip that all back and go back to the beginning? What is it we're trying to achieve? Is there a, if we got rid of all of the things we've done in the past and the way we've done it before and the plans that exist, what would be the quickest way of getting there? Can we do that? And then you start bringing in some of those things to go, oh, yeah, that fits, that works, we can still do that, and actually, no, this needs to be reinvented. But it requires someone to be brave enough to go, yep. this makes no sense. 
hundred percent. So there's something about yeah, giving permission in a sense yes. there. I'm going to take us to the next phase in my, this is my potted history of your career from afar. Sure, so I love it. So, yeah. <laughs> the next, the next step I think was similar for both of us again, which is mm. we, we both moved from those kind of, um, that advocacy or, or peer support kind of position into the like minds, like mine work. Mm. So for, again, for our listeners, like minds was a massive program in New Zealand that came out of our own kind of, we're talking about the Royal Commission here in, in Victoria. We had a kind of a similar um, once in a generation reform push that came from a, a judge's inquiry in the late 90s that essentially said, amongst many other things, it said one of the major barriers to recovery from, from mental distress is societal attitudes and discrimination. So not just services aren't good enough, but actually the whole of society needs to shift which is, you look at that now, that still feels like a radical viewpoint. And that was the kind of a guiding light for New Zealand's mental health sector from the late 90s. So they had this massive investment in what they called the Like Minds campaign. The idea of it was, can we, you know, through a multi-pronged approach, media, TV, but also local community development and workshops and and education, can we slowly shift societal attitudes to what it means to be crazy, to what it means to, to, to have... Uh, crisis and distress and as part of that program uh, individual organizations like the one that Tammy and I both worked for were given money to run essentially their own version of that program mm. so it's quite an autonomous thing quite a um, quite a creative sort of uh, yeah. program to be involved in and so I guess what I'm curious about is to me it seems from afar and I guess I'm also projecting my own experience for me moving into that work I saw as a as a chance to bring a bit more of a few more of my other skills into the work because I, I loved peer support. Yes. I'm, a, you know, I'm good at listening, but but I also, you know, I'm a I have a performance background like you. You have a background in acting and filmmaking. I have a background in music. There were these kind of creative impulses that I wanted to explore further in the mental health work. There were kind of interests in this more strategic kind of view. So I guess I'm curious, what drew you to that work? This this like minds work and in what way did that kind of broaden your skill set or, or allow you to kind of explore a bit more of what you're good at? Oh, that's what kept me in mental health. I mean, let's be honest, exactly like you. I mean, I, I'd i got a job, right, and the job was in mental health, but it's not where my heart lay and it's not where my passions were and it's not what fed me as a person. That All that stuff's creative. All that stuff is acting, producing, directing, filmmaking, music, writing, um, those were the things that, you know, were hobbies. You know, you had to do it on the side because in, in the end you had to have a day job as well. And mm. Like Minds gave me the opportunity to to merge those two things together, like really, really meld them and smash them together and make something better than both of those things for me. There was such, such scope to, as long as you fitted within the boxes and the guidelines of ensuring that what you were doing was going to change behaviours, in some way and you could prove that and you could you can measure that and evidence that then basically you could you could do what you want some of my you know i'll look back on my life and my you know my epitaph will probably the best moments will be in that time i mean i'm still most most proud of bringing together a a global event through like minds you know that had never been done before and it hasn't been done since that you bring every arts discipline together to to do a, a week of 
of an arts festival that's put on in the same place all over the world at the same time. I mean, that was super exciting. Tell us more about that. So if people wanted to look that up, what would they look up? Oh, they look up the big rethink. It basically kind of started as we we didn't have that much money. I think it was 20 grand we had, but it started off by going, well, why don't we host a competition and people can submit scripts, whatever that looks like for them. So people would submit a piece of music or a dance piece or a performance poetry or some visual art or and then people from all over, you know, organisations from all over the world said, oh, send, send us the scripts too and we'll do, we'll put them on or we'll live stream them in our place. And so it's shown in Melbourne and it was shown in New York and it was shown in Scotland. It was all over the place and other organisations doing one or two of the plays or the scripts or the pieces of music in their own. And so you know, the reach was literally hundreds of thousands of people that saw or participated in this and had an enormous effect on just how people thought of mental health. And I think it's infinitely better than standing up in front of people in a workshop and telling them what to do and then measuring whether they did it six months later because art sticks with you. Mm. You know, the lyrics of music go around in your head like an earworm, you know, the a visual piece that you've seen sticks in your mind for ages, a play that you've seen or la- a piece of comedy that you've laughed at um, tends to stick around mm. and you tend to be changed by those things. So I've always found it a, an amazing vehicle to, for advocacy, much better than writing a report, and I write lots of them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Reaching a few hundred thousand people on 20 grand is not, not a bad outcome. <laughs> not bad. Well, I mean, you know, those, when, you've, when you've got something to start with, obviously people, lots of people come to the party. There's something here, though, about this word leadership. And again, we, you know, it's a bit like the word innovation. The word leadership, what do we really mean? But what I'm hearing is you had a task that could have been a pretty straightforward one. We're going to do some workshops to change people's behaviors and attitudes around mental illness. Yeah. And you said, hey, if I can get enough people on board, we can make something really special and different here. Yeah. So I guess I'm curious, was that kind of a time in your career where you were like, oh, shit, I can actually do this. Like I can actually have more of an influence than just me. I'm, I'm sort of curious how how that went for you. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, – have you ever seen that Dancing Man video on YouTube? If you haven't, you should say that. Yes, but describe it Describe it for our listeners. It's someone has filmed a guy at a music festival and then they've put a voiceover over the top about how it demonstrates leadership, but it pretty much starts off with this guy standing up in the middle of the lawn and doing this most ridiculous dance all on his own looking like the crazy guy standing there. And then, and that happens for a while. And then, after a little while, another guy comes and says, "Oh, well, I'm going to join the crazy guy and I'm going to dance with him." And and then a snowball effect happens. And it, and by you know by the end of you know three or four minutes, pretty much everybody, thousands of people, in on that piece of grass in the music festival is dancing like crazy people. And it started with one guy being brave enough to go, "I don't care what everything thinks. I'm not doing what's normal. It's certainly not what's prescribed." but I'm just going to give it a go. But but he's not necessarily the leader in that. And I think that when you do stuff like the big rethink, sometimes people don't want to dance like the crazy person with you and those things fail and that's okay. But but the catalyst happens, that movement, that social movement happens when the second person joins and goes, hey, I think these guys are onto something. Mm. And the big rethink was a really great example of that because once we had a couple of people, or a particular couple of really good names, like we had one of the, the guy that wrote Wallace and Gromit, mm. he submitted a script 
Uh, and for us, that was like, we've got all the promo we need right now. Uh, <laughs> and so once you've got one or two people that really have a name and that people respect, jumping on board something like that, then suddenly everybody wants to and you have to kind of keep people away at the doors. But it starts with that kind of the, the first person after the first crazy dancing man. So this is about in your career where I moved to Australia, so I kind of wasn't seeing so up close what you were up to. And then the next thing I knew, uh, you were a bloody CEO. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a really huge three letters for, yeah, for a big imposter syndrome that comes with it, yeah. I bet. So I want to hear about that. So you, you became CEO of an organisation called Changing Minds, which you mentioned a little bit earlier. So tell us a bit about Changing Minds and how that move happened. So you were CEO there for six years. What is Changing Minds? How did you end up the CEO? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. No, so um, through those mind and body years, and I think it was there nearly 10 years, it certainly built a, a, a reputation for getting getting shit done. Mm. And um, by the time I left mind and body, I'd, I was in senior management team and, and running comms or doing a, the communications manager role. So I was kind of already in that slightly strategic space. But changing minds had been and I mean still is the longest continually running consumer organization in New Zealand and at that point it had just changed their names previous to that they were called the Auckland Regional Consumer Network and they'd gone through um they'd had a a, a manager you know or a couple of managers just previous to me that had really tried to change things up a little bit and do things that are a little bit more creative so there was a lot of scope for we were moving kind of from the 90s 2000s into this kind of new digital age where maybe maybe networking events and picnics and talking at people and sending out a newsletter wasn't going to be the next part of the journey but no one kind of knew what how to move it from from what that was because it was important to a lot of people and the board had some very wise people on it that have gone all over the world to do some pretty spectacular things now too uh, and in their wisdom, they went, yeah, we're a tiny organisation. And I mean tiny. Like when I joined, there was, I had one staff member. I was a CEO of one, yep. <laughs> which was quite felt quite ridiculous. But the, the board infinitely had a wisdom and a vision to say, well, if we call this new person the CEO and give them the scope and the mana, uh, the reputation, uh, the, the kudos that comes with that title, then maybe they'll be able to do great things. So really it was kind of a fake-it-to-make-it position, really, of this tiny little consumer organisation. But my email address was CEO at, you know, and and whilst it was kind of, it felt really embarrassing to wear that label, and, and I often called it the chief experience officer for that reason, <laughs> that it really did open doors. Having a title like that got you through to speak to people that probably wouldn't otherwise pick up the phone for me and I was able to do some pretty spectacular things and obviously the organization grow I think you know waxes and, and wanes depending on the on the contracts but when COVID we've got a big contract too so in that point there was probably about 25 staff and contractors working for us which was which was pretty big for a, a tiny little consumer organization and we'd gone from you know, working very small regionally in Auckland to, to working across the entire country. 
the fake it till you make it. The, the, the key part was the make it. So, so I'm sort of hearing that oh, by, yes. by the end of that, may, maybe those three three letters were, were a little bit more apt. Yeah, yeah. No, we, we did make it. And, and I say we because like mind and body, Changing Minds was one of those incredibly safe places um, for people with lived experience to, to it was like an employee of choice. You know, we had far more people wanting to work for us than we ever had positions to fill. And so I was very, very lucky to be able to really pick the cream of the crop when it came to, you know, hard workers, strategic thinkers, very, very driven people that will turn up for work on good days and bad days. As I moved into more and more strategic advisory positions in in government and, and elsewhere, it was really the team that, that held the weight of of the work that Changing Minds did and for a small team they did and still continue to do an incredible amount of work. So one of the things we hear a lot from our listenership, you mentioned imposter syndrome when you first went for the CEO role. That is like that's everywhere in our in our listenership from what I can tell from what people email me. You know, people saying even just in, say in a, in a clinical role, who who am I to be standing in front of a client telling them here are the yeah. things to try when I go home and feel blown apart yeah. myself? You know that kind yeah. of stuff. I always say to that, you are the perfect person to be talking to them because you know you don't have the answer, and that is a powerful thing. But I'm curious up the chain, just to weave a few threads together here. The thing is, at the top of the chain, you kind of are expected to have the answer. You are expected to be the one who holds their head in the crisis when everyone else is looking at you going, what the fuck do we do? And I'm really curious how how that interacts with your lived experience, how it interacts with even just the feeling of like, for people like you and I who've had quite non-standard career paths, mm-hmm. is one way to put it. Like, I don't know about you, but I often feel like I've got all these gaps in my CV because I've kind of mm-hmm. done things my own way. How do you deal with that feeling? And I'm thinking particularly in that first year or so of the CEO role at Changing Minds, how much of an issue was it feeling like, shit, I don't know what I'm doing? And how did you approach that? So firstly, it's not just the first one or two years. I live with imposter syndrome all the time Mm. and I'm constantly kind of battling with it. I mean, you know, when I got a letter from our Governor General saying you've been appointed to the commission, I I literally picked up the phone on the, dialed the number at the bottom and going, you know, there's someone else that's like similar spelling to me. Are you sure? Like, how is no? Surely, like, honestly, if I'm the best person for this role, we're fucked. You know, <laughs> that was that was pretty much how I thought of it at the time, and 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 still think of it. But I've mm. I've come, and then I I heard um in a meeting Jacinda Dern talk about her imposter syndrome, and for me, she's regardless of what you think of her policies or decisions, I think she's a spectacular leader and always has show what it's like to to juggle a whole lot of stuff particularly as as a woman and as a young woman at that and mm. and still get on and, and do shit and be kind along the way so i think she's great and when she said she has imposter syndrome i'm like oh well it must be normal then but i think that i've got a new way of looking at imposter syndrome and um as you and i you know know because we've spoken about it before i have you know i have I have three voices that live inside my head that uh, tell me a lot of things a lot of the time and generally mostly unhelpful. Mm. And recently I I contributed to a a book where I wrote, I personified those those voices. And the one that is my main imposter that tells me 
oh, what the hell am I doing here? I've got no right to be here. I've, I've personified this Donald Trump <laughs> because I feel that, you know, now, now when I hear that voice, I hear his voice <laughs> and I don't respect it. And I think that's incredibly powerful because one is, yeah, you can say what you like, Donny, but um, <laughs> you can also shut up because I'm not going to listen to that and there's, there's things that I can use to contradict it. But also I think if you don't have that imposter voice, then you're probably a narcissist. <laughs> you know, I and I think it's probably a positive thing. If you're constantly questioning whether you're the right person to be doing this, this that, that whether you're you're wondering whether you've got something else to learn, I think that's a good thing. Mm. I think it's I think it's an okay thing to question whether you're right to be there because then you're gonna strive hard to be more curious about what it is that you need to learn to do a better job. And you'll be forever doing a new, a better job. When you think you deserve to be there, it's probably time to step down and go somewhere else and let someone else in because it it means you've stopped learning. So I think of imposter syndrome now as a, a bit of a positive thing, a way of keeping yourself in check and continuing to learn. I love that. I particularly love the the Donald Trump voice. I'm hearing his voice right now, so thanks for that. Yeah. But there's... <laughs> Where can people you find read the book? It's, uh, the, the book itself is called um, Depression Lied to Me. It's on Amazon and Kindle and Barnes and & Noble and on all the good bookshops. Um, mine's the second second chapter. It's my story's called Fake News. Oh, that, that's fantastic. I love that. It's it's quite funny and real, but it kind of does kind of show the journey and, and personifies that imposter syndrome from incredible suicidality to, to kind of changing the world type things and how the imposter remains with you the whole time. Yeah. Reminds me a little bit of, um, I've mentioned this on the show before. Do you know Russ Harris, The Happiness Trap? No. It's a beautiful book, um, Unpacking Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, but he just has a very creative way of doing it. He's actually a GP by trade, but he happens to be a really good writer. He's a GP by trade, and he talks about how for years he was plagued by these these thoughts that he was a fucking terrible doctor and he was going to get people killed because he was so incompetent. And then... People say, how did you how did you get rid of those thoughts? And he's like, oh, I never did. I just don't listen to them anymore. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or when they're really loud, they're a little bit of a signal to me to go, what are you missing? Mm. Yeah, what what perspective haven't you heard? What have you still got to learn? Different imposters' messages for different reasons. But there's a through line there, eh, which is like there's a, there's a humility here, uh, like a humbleness. And we talked at the beginning about the the value of being able to be the naive questioner and there's also something there's something about identity here of like i get the impression from you that that you're a lifelong learner yeah and that you're you're as you say the moment you think you have all the answers is probably the moment to go and try something else (laughs) yeah that's right yeah (laughs) so that that frame of i'm learning i'm still learning i think again is is a really powerful frame for for those many times that you won't know or those many times that you won't be the exact perfect spokesperson on this subject and you go, who else do we need? But not in a way that I'm a piece of shit, <laughs> although that voice will be there. <laughs> it's- oh, yeah, yeah. No, what's de- that's definitely what it says. We just know, <laughs> you know, when Trump says it, it just doesn't have so much power. <laughs> I love that. When he says, you're wrong, <laughs> yeah, you go, yeah. Beautiful. Okay, I've only got a couple more questions. I'm really wanting to get a sense of the experience from the inside because it's so fascinating to me. I look at someone like you and I think there's someone with a really fancy looking CV by now, kicking some fucking goals. And then it's so interesting to hear you talk about how I, I get the impression part of you knows that and then part of you, it's it's sort of a, an ongoing process. Mm. I suppose I'm curious about 
in those in those busy roles, so now Ember Innovations, which is part of uh, the Ember Group, which is a, a really one of, is it New Zealand's biggest NGO, mental health NGO, or one of the biggest? No, no, probably one of the top three, yeah. Yep. So I suppose what I'm curious about there is seven years in now to these kind of big, you know, impressive sounding roles, CEO, director, does it feel any different at this point? That is, is there is there a, an element of, I'm less in the deep end or is it more, as you say, you've kind of got a new, a new challenge now right back in the deep end, drawing all the lessons you've learned from all the other times you've been in the deep end? Like how does it feel from the inside? Well, I mean, I left Changing Minds because it was one time to make space for a new lived experience leadership mm. and it was time for Changing Minds to shine as Changing Minds, not as whoever the leader was. And and secondly, it was time for me to take on a new challenge because, as you say, I, I need to learn and, and be challenged and that's part of my journey. Mm. I don't think I expected to be challenged as much as I am in this role. I thought it might be kind of a bit of a gentle transition where I might be able to apply some of you know my knowledge and learnings to something brand new, but, I, but I'm a year in now and I still feel I'm very much treading water still. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I don't think that changes, but maybe that's just the person I am, hmm. that search for challenge. I either take on too much and load myself with, you know, I think we've got, we were just hit, hit by the floods last week hmm. here in Auckland and, and our house was hit, but we were okay. We were not so bad. So we've, we've brought in a family into our into our bottom room so that they have somewhere to live because they lost their house. and. Um, they called me Shiva, so like you know, juggling all these things at once, and doing a thesis, and running a company, and doing and bringing people into the house, and dealing with floods, and and I think that that maybe that's just me. Maybe I just do a whole lot of things, and that that kind of state of slight overwhelm is probably my normal. Yep. When I don't have enough on my plate, I tend to get quite depressed. And I woke up this morning feeling quite depressed and then I'm like, what What? what does that mean? Why am I feeling like this? And I realised, oh, I submitted my thesis yesterday. So one of my big pieces has just fallen off my plate. And so mm. I've got to be really mindful that I don't immediately go and fill that void. But instead I acknowledge that, you know, this the, the overwhelm that I'm feeling in um, in being an imposter in, in my role and learning a new language and, and what this space might mean to me probably should be where my focus is where that void should be filled what it should be filled by so i think what i have become in terms of a lived experience journey over the last 20 years is and i remember graham you and i spoke about this in the early years but i think we really got it and then now i get it i've become a really great observer of me mm. you know i think my role requires me to be a really great observer of everything else and everyone else and society and systems and all that sort of stuff. But what I have become really good at is observing myself and being quite patient and accepting that that is not always that stable. Hmm. That state of being is not stable. And so just observing what overwhelms me and what doesn't doesn't necessarily change it it's just observing it and accepting it. Yeah. I think that's really powerful because you're, you're, 
you're speaking to something there that is both personal and also professional, right? So observing yourself and the multiplicity of self in this work, right? Like I know for me, there are times where the simplest tasks that I have to do for my work are fucking overwhelming. And there are other times where I'm absolutely in flow and in my genius zone. Yep. And, you know, we're literally talking. I'm, I mentioned this off mic. I'm wearing a, a quite floofy looking weighted wrap that I bought on the internet, which is like a three and a half kilogram wrap that goes around my shoulders, literally just to calm my nervous system down as I sit at my computer doing my work. And it's it's a powerful little thing. And I've started wearing it in meetings and I'm, th- and I'm finally old enough to go, who gives a shit what anyone thinks of me? Um, yeah. But that is, that is a lifelong observation of what works for me and what doesn't. And I think when we're younger, we think we have to hide that, right? Like mm-hmm. all the little things, little and big things that, that make it work for us, we think we need to hide them. And then as, a, as we get older and into these, particularly in these roles where, you know, you're literally managing other people, I can imagine there's an element there that that, and this is the professional part, like to observe what works for you is to observe what will work for your workforce and, what you, and your colleagues and all those others that you're trying to create a safe enough space to do this tender work in. Mm. So this is kind of, this sort of brings me to the, the last bit of my questioning, which is around where we're talking a lot over here in Victoria about why would you have, why have more leaders with lived experience? Why have designated lived experience GM roles? Why have, you know, why hire people with lived experience into CEO roles? There's, there's the obvious, and we talked about this at the top of like, you've got skin in the game, you're going you're gonna to want to do things differently. If you've been through that shitty system, if, you've, if you spent the weekend in ED having an, an a, you know, understandably overwhelmed healthcare staff not know what to do with you in that space, then you know the need for something other than ED for people in distress. So there's that whole side of it, but I'm really curious about the other side of it, which, which sort of goes to where, we, where we've got to here, which is like, just as a leader, how do you lead differently when you have brought not only all this professional learning and expertise, but also this lived expertise and this, this years-long effort of watching yourself and learning what works for you and what doesn't, how does that affect how you lead other people? Being vulnerable is the way I lead, and I don't mean that I'm you know, constantly in tears at work, although occasionally I have been, but it's... <laughs> But it's allowing others to do the same. It's allowing people to go, hey, I'm going to accept you however you are right now and not judge you for that and not think you're an, a lesser worker or a not hard worker or a slacker or anything, or that you're not capable of things because of it, because I'm really open about my own, you know, my own stuff. And so I think, but also comes with that in terms of my leadership comes with that and I think I've said that before to you that it it absolutely does not come as an excuse to not work. You know, there is a bit of a trade-off. And I think if you've worked and lived in a lived experience organization, you inherently get that. Yep. But if you're trying to set up lived experiences positions within an existing organization that's not lived experience led, then that requires some very um very targeted work to make sure that that culture is set up because it's a fine balance to get the please bring your whole self to work and be vulnerable but also work really hard that's 100% that's that's a challenge to make and so yeah. i think if you are a leader regardless of what organization you work in and i think it's almost more valuable now at this point in our in our time on earth 
to talk about lived experience leadership outside the mental health sector because I think that's where the biggest changes are going to be made. Mm. You know, if um, no, I'm not going to say that, but if the big, you know, if the big CEOs that everyone knows in the world come out as having lived experience, of which you only need to hear half of them talk to realise that they do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they're open about their journey and they're vulnerable about it, and they use that as a way to be more empathetic mm. with the way they lead and the staff and the way that they're creating products that change the world and that for me is the gold bit Hmm. but that's not an easy task and even moving into this role where I'm working within the group of organizations that surround mental health and we're proud to have the largest amount of lived experience staff regardless of what their position is but still it's not a lived experience organization in its entirety so there have been moments even in my role now where i've thought oh gosh was i too vulnerable then Hmm. was the fact that i was just bawling at the board table maybe not such a good idea today (laughs) you know and so there's that constant checking of of your balance too but Hmm. but in a nutshell being vulnerable allows other people to be vulnerable showing that you can be vulnerable and sometimes messy but still strong and resilient and hardworking shows others that they can be that too you know we did this wonderful exercise at the end of last year which is always a feel-good exercise where you turn your back on the rest of the team and the team talk about how wonderful you are and that's always a really nice builder Mm. and i don't actually remember some of the things they say but i i I remember the one word that i'm very proud of hearing and that is empathy Mm. that that people find me effortlessly empathetic Mm. um and and I think I am that. I think I can wear that. I think I just accept you however you are. I don't, you know, whatever your identity or whatever your experience or whatever you're going through or not going through or have or haven't gone through this, it's it's just not a thing for me. It's not a big thing for me. You know, I've had to wear the horrendousness of sitting with parents that have lost children and I'm okay to sit in that space with physical pain, mental pain, suicidality. Mm. I'm okay with all of those things. I can be empathetic to them. I can not advice give. I can Mm. just sit with it. And that's a comfortable space for me. And I think that maybe that's unique. Maybe not everyone has that. And maybe that's a thing to be proud of that I've that I've learned on this journey. God, yes. That is the that's the lived expertise. That's the lived wisdom, isn't it? And I'm hearing a, a resonance between, you know, we learn that with others when we've been through it ourselves. And it's almost like there's the parallel there to the, the slow journey of learning that with ourselves. Beautiful. I think we'll, we'll wrap there. It, there's so much in that. And I'm so, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about putting this out. <laughs> so thank you for oh, your, your time. This has been Big Fields of Work. My guest today has been Tammy Allen. Thank you so much, Tammy. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Graham. Um, Lots of lovely feels today. Thanks. Thanks for having me on.